My name is Julie Smith and I run the newly rebranded Transatlantic Security Program and I am joined here today by Jim Townsend who recently joined us as an adjunct senior fellow, former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense at the Pentagon for all eight years of the Obama administration. Great to have you here, Jim. And it's a great honor today to have Carl Bild join us for the podcast. He, of course, is the former Prime Minister of Sweden, also served as Foreign Minister, has had a really unbelievable career for many decades, is well known on Twitter, uh, and in an array of foreign policy and national security circles around the globe. And so welcome to you, Carl. It's great, it's great to see you. Thanks very much. Great to be here. So uh, before we jump into a couple of meaty, substantive uh, questions, I did want to ask you, you know, you have an amazing set of experiences, have taken on so many challenges over the years. Um, in your neighborhood and beyond, you're well-traveled, uh, have served in and out of government in many high-ranking positions. Looking back um, on your career, um, how would you describe, you know, what's one of the great truths that came to you in serving, either in government or out of government, something that you can't really read in a book or hear from a mentor over years or somebody you respect. When you look back and, and think about uh, all of your work, particularly in the area of foreign policy and transatlantic uh, relations, is there one great truth in all of those experiences that really stands out for you? Your big lesson learned. Good yes. question. Big I probably lesson. have to yes. not only read the books, but also write the book in order to answer <laughs> that particular question. No, I think the, 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 the thing that i fairly obvious, I've been sort of dealing with foreign affairs in sort of national capacity and in European capacity and other capacities. Uh, the basic thing is, if you look at the big global challenges that we have, we've regional ones, we can only deal with them together. Um, National foreign policy, even for big nations, I would say, is an illusion. Uh, it's an illusion that's very popular with our national audiences sometimes, that yep. has to be said. You can yep. wave the flag yep. and uh, say that we can do it. Um, but at the end of the day, um, not even the greatest of nations uh, can do it alone. Yeah. No, and I think that's been lost a little bit today, I think. Yeah, uh, we can. Uh, we might well fail together, <laughs> uh, but we can never succeed if we are not together. Uh, yeah. That's sort of a basic lesson, I think. No, oh, thanks. That you thanks. can apply yeah. to virtually everything. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's right. So, okay. Even, it, even it, in the Pentagon. I, I, <laughs> well, and, you know, on that point, I would say I think the Pentagon learned that, too, yeah. with Iraq in those early days when we went into mm -hmm. Iraq. Uh, and there are a lot of the allies and our partners said, look, we're not going to go in. We had a handful. And we went in there, and I think we determined that while we could go in there, mm -hmm. even with a handful of friends uh, and partners, um, it, it was something that we couldn't do alone because it was very hard to carry forward what we had to do in Iraq when you had partners asking, why are you doing this? And the American people eventually came around and said, why are our best friends asking us why we're doing this? What's going on? Usually they're with us. What, what's happened here? And so I think we realized politically we really needed everybody. We could do it militarily, but politically you need everyone there with you. Absolutely. You need to You need to also to the canvas the, the wisdom of everyone. Um, one of my favorites Examples is Libya. Mm. Um, I remember when I was I was an EU foreign minister at the time, and uh, listening around the table, 
who knew anything about Libya? Well, yeah. the Italians had some an element of knowledge and experience, but uh, the country that I found had the wisdom was Malta. Yeah, I mean, Malta. You don't necessarily see it as a big actor. It doesn't foreign stand policy scheme. out. No, yeah. it doesn't stand out on <laughs> yeah. sort of all sorts of issues. Uh, but you found on that particular issue, of course, they have been living with the Libyan issue for generations. Yeah. They have in their genes. They knew things that we didn't know. Yeah, and uh, that's sort of good to know that you need to find the wisdom and you can find it even in the smallest nation. Size doesn't always matter. That's absolutely, absolutely right. Absolutely. And you know, um, George Schultz said something very similar. He did a little broadcast for the Finns for their 100th anniversary and it mm. was on Twitter um, a couple of days ago and I, gosh, I had not seen or heard him in so many years and there he was. But he was talking about Finland because as Secretary of State he used to go through Helsinki on the way to Moscow. Mm. And he said that, you know, it was good not just to be in Finland and then seeing the Finns, but he says, I would have meetings with the Finnish government, and I would get little insights on the Soviets uh, that, I, that, I, that I didn't have from my own experience, from my own briefing books, but I would sit down with Finnish leadership, and they would offer some suggestions and offer some ideas that shed real light on what I was trying to do. And he said, I always wanted to go through Helsinki just to hear that. So you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And with Tillerson in... Uh Moscow today, maybe you should have made a stop. And, I think you're uh, right. What do you think about <laughs> still that? Still be relevant today. But yeah, what, so switching to current events, what's your, you know, in theory, as we're recording this broadcast, uh, Tillerson is sitting across the table from President Putin. What do you think's going on inside the room? What do you think the mood music's like and what, what how it's going? Well, what I, what I can follow from the media is that it's going to be a sort of repeat performance yeah. in the sense that um, it seems like sort of Secretary Tillerson or the idea is to say to the Russians that uh, this lining up with Assad is not a very good business, it's not in the long-term interest of Russia, so you have to change that particular policy. Well, Lavrov has been subject to that particular lecture for years, exactly. so he's heard that story before, and um, he will say that. And he would say that, well, we don't particularly like, we are not sort of married to this particular guy. But we do believe that if you take him away too soon, the entire thing is going to collapse. And that will leave room for forces of a nature that we don't particularly like. So I think they're going to dance around that. And then we are back to, we are back to where we started on Syria. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's unless there's something happening that no one of us knows. And on that point, what do you think? I mean, Julie and I were just talking about this. Here you have Tillerson, who just a few years ago got the Medal of Friendship from Putin himself. So there, you know, there you are. You have these two men who know each other, who mm-hmm. have been on good on good terms. So Tillerson shows up today. He opens the door, Putin opens the door, Tillerson walks in, they close the door. What do they really say? I mean, it's not like you can go directly to your talking points and your briefing books and what your staff has suggested that you say. He's your friend. He's your business associate. So what does Tillerson really say? What do they talk about in those opening day? No, they probably said, hello, nice to see you. How are you? How's the medal? Uh, how is the family? How is the medal? <laughs> <laughs> does the medal fit? Or, or, the, or the Putin is not a man for small talk. Exactly. Has, has yeah, exactly. So he, he probably Right to that. And uh, Putin has been taking a very hard line on uh, the Syria missile strike. Uh, he didn't like that uh, yeah. because he saw that, to a certain extent, directed against himself. 
it was directed against Assad, but but in, in political terms, it was directed against him as well. So I think he's going to take a fairly hard line on that. Mm-hmm. I don't think there will be much love in that particular meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, I think that's right. Uh, they know each other before. They have been making deals, yeah. good deals and bad deals, I guess. And deal making is not the same as love. Yeah, but I think yeah, the fact that point. yeah that they've been in a room together before, I mean, Tillerson will no doubt have some understanding of what to expect. Putin's not mm-hmm. a stranger to him, and that no. helps, you know. When no, you deal I mean with that's Putin. that's and not uh, that's yeah. not a disadvantage. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I there agree. was when 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 Tillerson came in, there was a lot of people who were skeptical because he'd been dealing with Russia before. I think that's rather a plus. I I would agree. He's been with to that. the place. I would agree with that. Uh, All right, so one more, maybe one more question for the round here before we uh, sign off. Um, you know, I we were in Munich. Many of us were in Munich. We heard an array of speeches about the future of the West. John McCain, Senator McCain, was out there with a very passionate uh, kind of almost plea to preserve the West and care for it mm-hmm. and uh, tend to it. But it was interesting when Frederica uh, Mogherini, the the mm-hmm. chief foreign policy head uh, at the European Union, got up and talked about particularly the European Union. She was keen to give a very optimistic outlook that the EU and the European project is in fact not in crisis, that not every indicator was blinking red, uh, and tried to leave the audience with more of an uplifting uh, sense. And for me, when I look at the internal and external challenges that the European continent's facing, what the United States is facing, whether it's counterterrorism challenges or Russian attempts to undermine our democratic institutions or some weak economies or Brexit, I mean, I I do I do uh, find it hard to feel overly optimistic in any case about the future of the European project. But Carl, what you know? How, how do you see it? Are you somewhere I'm, in the middle, or I'm somewhat more confident. Okay. Uh, of course, we are we are in distinctly more problematic and challenging times. I mean, that applies to each and everyone. Yes, agreed. Um, yeah. So yeah. Europe is not not different. Not um, yeah. What you can see is that what dominated the headlines a couple of years ago, the economic crisis, uh, that's to a certain extent behind us. I mean. The, uh, all of the economies are growing uh, in Europe. As a matter of fact, if you look at the last quarter, uh, the European economy is doing better than the US economy, and the US economy is not doing badly. Uh, we are struggling with the migration crisis, no question about that. Uh, getting a common asylum policy, getting control of the external borders, those things had not been thought of before, and uh, not going to be entirely easy, and there are different attitudes to receiving refugees um, in the different countries. That will take some time time to sort out, but, 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 but there's a recognition that these are issues that we can only deal with together. Uh, then we have the Brexit thing, which is of course a significant setback, no question about that. It's a significant setback for Europe, for Britain and whatever, and the negotiations will now start. Uh, divorced proceedings are normally fairly acrimonious uh, between <laughs> nations as well, and I, I, I think we'll see that demonstrated. Um, but at the end of the day, which is going to take some years, we're going to end up with some sort of sort of close partnership and free trade agreement. And then the big issue, I'm, I'm more concerned, as a matter of fact, by the possible breakup of Britain than the possible yeah. breakup then of the European Britain Union. Le- yeah. Then the UK leaving. Um, yeah, that's well, interesting. Let me ask you about young Europeans. Do you think that um, so much of what made the European project go well, which was in, in addition to the economy, was the the fire and the passion behind Europe, the development of this European, this feeling of being a European, these common values of a young Swede and a young Italian, or, or is that still with the millennials, do you think, in Europe? Is that, or young I, Swede? 
leads going forward with this? Well, I, I think it's there, but it's not taken for granted. Um, go back X numbers of decade or generation, they were fighting for it because it wasn't there. Now, to some yeah. extent, it is there. That's right. Um, and go back also in time, uh, I think the European project was driven by visions and by dreams, like coming out of war and peace and freedom and all of those things. Uh, that doesn't apply. That has faded to some extent because it's done, or people believe it's done anyhow. Uh, but now I think it's driven forward by a sort of necessity. Um, look at last year, there were sort of 12 meetings of the European Council. Um, in, the, in the treaties there are four. There should be, but there were 12. Uh, mm. Why were there 12 meetings? Well, it's not because of the heads of state and government sort of have spare time and want to go <laughs> buy chocolates in Brussels. It, it's, <laughs> no. it's, it's because of the necessity, as I said, small nations need to do together. Yeah. I think there's six meeting schedules if you take it together between the beginning of this year and the summer. Amazing. Yeah. That could be migration, that could be Syria, that could be the Balkans, that could be uh, digital issues, that could be trade issues and whatever. Um, so we are driven together by the necessity, by the the sort of recognition among political leaders that we are too small to deal with the issues on our own. Mm -hmm. um, so more, more necessity, less vision. Um, less passion. Less passion, perhaps. Yeah, so, it might yeah. be that passions are coming back at some point in time, but uh, necessity is also a fairly strong driving yeah. force. And, and what we've seen, of course, in opinion polls throughout Europe is an increase in support for the European Union. Yeah, so maybe the passion is coming back. Well, there's, there's also been, there's been sort of an anti-Brexit and there's been an anti-Trump, yeah. yeah. to be quite honest. Uh, people, sort of, Trump is not the most popular American president in memory. <laughs> In Europe, at least, um, and and Brexit is seen as messy. So no one wants no one wants that. And accordingly, there's sort of indirectly, we see that support for the European Union going up at the moment. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the economy, which was the big issue, um, seems to be more okay, and the migration crisis has passed the acute state, the acute phase. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's solved, but it's part of the acute phase, I think, helps. Yeah, nowhere near what it was. No, uh, no, no. Well, we, it's, um, the big thing in 2015 was, of course, Syria. Right, yeah. Afghanistan, Iraq, to a certain sure. extent. Uh, Balkans, that story is essentially gone for X numbers of reasons. We now have the story of uh, sort of Central Mediterranean, Libya, Africans coming. Which is not refugees, is migration. Agreed. Yeah. Coming to yeah. Italy. Yeah. And that needs to be sorted out and handled. Absolutely. Well, listen, Carl, really appreciate you coming by CNAS and having a chat with Jim Townsend and me, and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime in the future. Tell Thank all of you. our friends in Stockholm we say hello. Yes. I will. Thank Great you. to be here. Thank Thanks. you.